world is turned upside down. And uh, last week we looked at Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah. And this week we're going to take another look at them, but from a little bit of a different vantage point. And so please turn to Luke chapter 1, chapter 50, uh, 46 through 56. And I'm going to pray as we, we begin. Father, we uh, just welcome your Holy Spirit this morning. We welcome his presence. We thank you, Lord, that as we look at the book of Luke, we're looking at a book that is filled with instances of your Holy Spirit revealing things and speaking to people and manifesting himself. We thank you, Lord, for um, a song sung by Mary uh, that is empowered and inspired by your Spirit. And so we welcome your presence here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of us in this room are worshipers of something. We're all worshipers of something. We cannot not worship. Worship is like hardwired into the very core of our being. So what is worship? Worship is, is when I ascribe worth to something that I think has value. If I ascribe worth to that thing, I am entering into worship, but that's not all of worship. If I see something that has value and I ascribe worth to that, generally what I feel is a sense of transcendence. I feel a sense of, of momentary greatness. For example, let's say that I am skiing in Colorado. I can remember a time where I was skiing in Colorado with my family. And I got, I got snow-studded trees around me. I've got snow-capped peaks off in the distance in a beautiful hill down below me. And I can remember skiing and getting to the bottom of the hill and saying to my son, I love this. I love this. And what am I doing in that moment? I am ascribing worth to something that gives me transcendence. I'll give you another example. About seven years ago, I was sailing with my oldest son in the British Virgin Islands. We had uh, just gone from Marina Key, we're headed up to Virgin Gorda, we're in the middle of a channel, and we're going at our top hull speed, 46-foot catamaran. And there was no obstructions, no, no boats anywhere near to us, so I put it on autopilot. Like, who knew that boats have autopilot? Well, boats have autopilot. I put it on autopilot, and I walked up to the front of the bow where, where Caleb was. I said, I love this. I love every part of this. I was ascribing worth to an experience that was giving me a sense of transcendence. All of you have your thing that gives you transcendence. It's that thing that makes you say, I'm so fired up about this. I'm so excited about what we're doing. We all have that thing. Could be a good thing. Could be a good thing. Good thing like going to the Super Bowl, times with family. Could be a bad thing, an illicit relationship, substances, whatever. Worship is this thing that's hardwired into the core of our being, and we cannot not do it. And here's what happens when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, the Spirit does this incredibly transformative thing inside us where we look at that thing that gave us transcendence, 
And we don't worship the thing, we worship the God who is the source of that thing. And so we human beings were idolaters before we come to Christ, worshiping skiing and sailing and people and events and things like that. Then all of a sudden we come to Christ, what we realize is the God of the universe is the source of those things. So that if, if I love skiing, I worship the source of the mountains and the trees and any athletic ability that I have. I worship the source of that. If I enjoy sailing, I worship the one who gave me the ability to do that. If I worship, you know, if, if, I, if I love family, I, I come to worship the God who, who gave me family. The Spirit shifts our natural human propensity to worship, and it, it shifts it into worshiping the God, the God who is the source of all that. Now, here's the catch. Here's the catch, and it's always a catch. The catch is that for me to worship the source of whatever fires me up, God generally has to turn my world upside down. He generally has to turn my world upside down. Because I can be a really good idolater until my world gets turned upside down. And then I realize God and God alone is the source of who I am. I think Mary probably went through something like that. And so what I want to do is I want to remind you of the story we, I told last week. Then I want to look at her song. So let's, let's, let me refresh your memory on the story that I told last week uh, about Mary. One night, Gabriel comes to a tiny village in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is really small. And the girl he comes to is really young. I'm thinking she's 13, maybe 13 and a half, 14 years old. The angel comes down and says, Mary, Mary, you are so privileged. God is with you. You found favor in his sight. You're going to have a baby boy. And that baby boy is going to be amazing. You're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to be very great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. God is going to give to your son the throne of his ancestor David. David Mary, you're going to be the mother of a, of a king. And his reign is going to last forever. Talk about amazing. This announcement is amazing for Mary. It's amazing for the angel because there are myriads of invisible angels hovering over Gabriel this mo at this point, I'm assuming. Bob didn't say that, I'm assuming. I'm assuming these angels are hovering over Gab Gabriel, wondering what Mary's going to do. This is like the announcement of all human history. And the angels are thinking, how is she going to respond? What's she going to say? This could seriously interrupt her life. Well, the angel says, uh, well, Mary says, like, okay, how's this going to happen? She knows biology. She knows biology. She wonders, how, how is this, this going to happen? And the angel explain, explains. And then the angel says this. The angel says, Mary, your cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant. Mary does a little bit of, of quick math, realizes that her cousin Elizabeth is really old. You know how when you're 13, people who are like 26 seem old? If you're 13 and you've got, you got a 70-year-old cousin, that's really old. 
And Mary realizes, if my cousin is supernaturally pregnant, I need to go see my cousin. And so Mary goes on a road trip. And as I said last week, this is total speculation, but I'm assuming on this road trip, she did not ask permission from her parents. She did not ask permission of her fiancé, Joseph. She went, and she went alone. No caravan director, leader, driver, no caravan leader would ever allow a single 13-year-old to be on that caravan train. No way. I think she went alone. Hoisted up her North Face backpack, you know, got some water in her camelback, and she, off she went on a five-day grueling journey. And after five days, she gets to the village of Ein Karem, and when she gets there, when she gets there, this amazing thing happens. John the Baptist does backflips in Elizabeth's womb, and the whole house encounters the presence of the unborn, unseen Jesus, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about what this house was like. I think this house is, is an example of the proto-body of Christ. The body of Christ is in Mary's womb, and he's spiritually active. So what do we see? We see three adults, Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah. We see two kids, the unborn John the Baptist and the unborn Jesus, and Jesus is using his ministry of giving the Holy Spirit, and John is using his ministry through his backflips in Elizabeth's womb of announcing the Messiah. They're active in ministry. Uh, we have a person who's handicapped, which is Zechariah. We have a person unexpectedly pregnant, which is Mary. We have the presence of the Spirit, and this is a microcosm of the body of Christ, a wonderful microcosm of the body of Christ. Now, that's the story. Now we shift to the song. And here, Mary composed this amazing song to express her worship. Now, remember, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. This song is a supernaturally inspired song sung by Mary in the presence of this proto-body of Christ in this house. It's an amazing song. It's an amazing song. Now, I want you to get, to, to get the feeling for the song for a second. Many years ago, Cindy and I went to see Les Mis in the Mechanic Theater in Baltimore. I was totally unprepared for the... I was, I was amazed at the artistry of Les Mis. And I am also amazed when I hear Susan Boyle sing this in front of Simon Cowell on Britain's Got Talent. And I've probably seen this maybe half a dozen times. It is a joyful event that this unlikely person sings this song. I dreamed a dream. You want me to sing it for you? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I mean, I can, I can hardly listen without feeling the emotions of this song. That's what this song was to Zechariah, to Elizabeth. It was a profoundly emotionally charged song. Uh, the name of the song in your Bible is probably, probably the Magnificat. And the reason why is because the first word in the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, is Magnificat. Literally, it, it is, exalts my soul, the Lord. Um, so it's, it's this magnificent, I'm exalting. The whole point of the song is an exaltation. It's a joyous, emotional exaltation. It has an amazing theme, and the theme in a nutshell is this. God 
overthrows established authorities. Did you know that this 13-year-old Mary is going to sing a song that was such a politically charged song? God overthrows established authorities. Rome was an established authority. Political Judaism was an established authority. Surrounding nations were established authorities. And Mary's singing about God overthrowing established authorities. This is quite some, this is a, an amazing teenager. The song has a sub-theme. And the sub-theme theme is this, in God's economy, the most humble person now is endowed with power. This is a very deep song of worship. Look, th- that, a, that a teenager sings this song is amazing. That a girl sings this song is astonishing, given the culture of the first century. Girls didn't do things like this. And Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, is doing a new thing, a fresh thing, indicating to us and to everybody who reads Luke, God is doing a new thing. The humble now are the ones who have the power. Now, as we go through this song, I, I want to notice four things about worship. The first thing is this. Worship is a choice. If you're going to worship the God of the universe, it is going to be a choice that God invites you to make. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. Some of your versions say, say my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. It will say past tense, that second line. So Mary uses the word soul and spirit, and these are two very different things. <clears throat> In the Bible, your soul is the place from which you ponder, you think, and you feel. Your spirit is the executive center where you choose, where you make decisions, where you make choices. So, with my soul, I might fall in love. With my spirit, I make a decision about marriage. With my soul, I might love my job. With my spirit, I might accept a transfer to Alaska. Soul is thought, emotion. Spirit is will and decision. And what Mary is saying in this first line is that she has decided that she will exalt the Lord. Wait a second. Even, even in the chaos of this surprise pregnancy, even in the chaos of this pregnancy where everybody could reject her, yeah, she has decided, I will exalt the Lord. I will lift Him up. I will rejoice in Him. My soul magnifies the Lord. Some translations, based upon the original language, would say this, my soul magnifies the Lord because my spirit has already rejoiced in God my Savior. I made a choice to worship, and that choice influenced my emotions. Now, usually it's the reverse for us. If I love skiing, I make a choice to go skiing. If I love sailing, I make a choice to go sailing. However, with God, it's different. God invites us to make a choice to worship Him, and the emotions tend to follow. Mary made a choice. I suspect she made that choice as she was 
with the angel as she's walking to the hill country of Judea. She made that choice, and because she made that choice, the emotions followed. Let me remind you about something that I, I talk about a lot because I think is really cool. Um, oxytocin is that brain chemical that produces bonding. Oxytocin is released in all sorts of touch and in all sorts of positive areas. It's also released in corporate worship. There was a study that was done on brain chemistry that said when people, they could be Christians, they could be non-Christians, when people sing corporately, oxytocin is released in the brain and you feel a larger sense of connection than if you were just worshiping solo. It's an amazing thing that God has hardwired our brains so that we encounter on a biochemical level connection with others as we sing. Bottom line is this, choosing to worship creates an environment in your soul that lifts your soul into joy. Let me just say that again. Worship creates an environment in your soul that lifts your soul into joy even in the midst of chaos. And I can just imagine Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, filled with joy. Their lives are in total chaos, and they're filled with joy because they chose to worship. Here's the second principle. Second principle is worship is imaginative. Worship is a, is a choice. Worship is also imaginative. In true worship, you're going to see yourself in the midst of God's big story. Next verses, we see this. For he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the one who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see how he uses the word generations? Yeah, Mary is thinking about her story in light of the great, big, massive, epic story that God has been writing from the very beginning. Mary, as a young girl living in Nazareth, had memorized vast amounts of Scripture. They were not a text-based culture like we are. We tend to not be motivated to memorize because why should I? I can Google it. I can download it off of Kindle and, and Audible. Want information? I'll Google that information. I've sometimes called to buy something called, you know, the store to buy something, and they say, let me check the internet. Let me, let me see if it's available. You know, we're a text-based culture, a digitally-based culture. Back then, they were memory-based culture. She had memorized vast amounts of Scripture. She knew the contours of the Old Testament story backward and forward, and she is seeing herself in light of this great, big, gigantic story that God is writing. So think about Mary. Mary's, Mary's world is in total chaos right now. Will her parents reject her when she comes back? Will Joseph reject her? Will everybody in Nazareth tweet out snarky tweets, gossipy tweets about Mary's condition? She's, is she waking up at 3 a.m. with acid reflux in bed because she doesn't know how everybody's going to respond? No. She is shifting into seeing her story in light of this great, big, story that God is writing. So what's the story? Well, <clears throat> the story is that she is carrying the Messiah. And I want you to notice that you too stand 
in a similar place. Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Do you have the physical Christ in you? Are you pregnant with the physical Christ? Obviously not. But is Jesus spiritually being formed inside you? Yeah, He is. And in that spiritual formation, Christ being formed in you, you are living in the midst of this really, really big story that God is writing that began in the Garden of Eden and ends in a garden in heaven. In in Revelation 21 and 22, you're in the midst of this, this really, really big story. Does it really matter how big your story is? Is your story as a Christian as big as St. Augustine's was or as big as Martin Luther's was or as big as Billy Graham's was? Is your story that big? Does it matter? Does it matter? Because the hero of the story is Jesus, not you. You're the supporting cast. It's it's all about Jesus. It doesn't matter how big your role is in the supporting cast. It's all about you lifting him up and seeing yourself in light of God's really big story. It's very hard to worship if you think the big story is all about you. It's really hard to worship. Because if the story's about me, then I don't really worship Jesus because he's competing with me. If if it's all about Jesus, I can lift him up and worship him because I'm part of the supporting cast and the big thing that he's doing. So what's your role right now? You're a believer priest. You're endowed with kingdom power. You will be a joint heir with Jesus. You will rule with him. Worship embraces that big story and lifts lifts Jesus up. Um, Here's another principle. Worship not only... Uh, sees the big story, but it embraces radical humility. But it's, a, it's an interesting kind of humility. It's humility with a lot of joyful confidence. Notice, notice what she says. Uh, he has shown, shown strength with his arm. Strength with his arm. Uh, the arm was a symbol of strength and power. He's shown strength with his arm. How has he shown strength? Well, he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he's sent away empty. I want you to notice those three, those three verbs, scattered, dethroned, sent away. Mary, the 13-year-old girl who composed this song, is using mixed metaphors. And it's fascinating, mixed metaphors. In the scattering verb, he's talking about winnowing grain. Those powerful people are like chaff. You lift the seeds up and the chaff blows away in the wind. Strong metaphor. In the dethroning verb, she's talking about the idea of a coup d'etat, overthrowing a ruler. Strong verb. In the sending away verb, she's talking about a beggar being sent away and empty-handed. Mary's talking about the radical overthrow of the proud. And God is not gently removing these people. He's pulverizing their pride. Notice then what happens to the humble. He has shown strength with his arm. Whoa. He's strengthening the humble. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. Exalt, fill, give and help. Mary sees past the proud veneer of the world. 
You know, the world has a proud veneer. You have a veneer. I have a veneer. We have this self we want to project to the world that's very competent. We have a self that we want to, want to make look very adequate. When we look at the world around us, we see this proud veneer. And Mary, Mary in worship pierces through the proud veneer and she says, you know what? God loves to lift up the humble and exalt the poor and comfort the brokenhearted. I worship the God who sees past the proud veneer of the world and gets to the heart of things. I worship that God who does that. And worship, you know, we, we don't obsess over what seems to be real from our knowledge of this world. We focus on what's truly real from God's vantage point. That lifts us up in the worship. And then the final principle on worship is worship stands on the promises of God. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and of his offspring forever. Here's what's really cool about that verse. Uh, Mary is mixing together at least three Old Testament verses. Genesis 12, Isaiah 49, and Micah 7. Just seamlessly mixing these in to the songs that she's, she's singing. And here's, here's the cool thing about, about this verse. Um, the servant Israel in Isaiah was a reference to the Messiah. You see that over and over again in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66. There are servant songs in that section, and they are a reference to the, to the Messiah. In other words, God's Messiah is going to be the ideal Israel. He's going to be the ideal servant. And what Mary is saying is, uh, is God has helped His servant Israel. Is she referring to the Messiah in her womb? Prophetically speaking, I suspect she is. Prophetically speaking, I expect she's thinking, help, help your servant Israel to serve Israel as he comes into the world. She's standing upon the promises that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, Isaiah 49, and Micah chapter, chapter 7. Now, <clears throat> let's step back for a moment and look at the main idea of this song. The main idea is that worship, not that just the song but the story, worship allows you to bring God's joy into your chaos. Remember the chaos of Mary, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. It is chaotic. And worship brings God's joy into this chaos. What's Zechariah's chaos? He's deaf, can't hear, can't speak. What's Elizabeth's chaos? Well, she's joyful because she's pregnant, but she's 70 or maybe 75. That's a little bit chaotic to be pregnant in 75. What's Mary's chaos? Mary's thinking, what happens when I get back? Joseph's rejection, my parents' rejection, my neighbor's rejection. And there's, a there's the chaos of, of the world. We got Herod the Great on the throne who didn't hesitate to kill people, you know. So worship brings God's joy into the chaos of the people who are struggling with a mess. So what do we do to apply this? 
Well, here are four ways I think we can move into deeper worship, especially worship of this, this Christmas season. Um, and <clears throat> the first way is by really focusing in on our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all over <laughs> this passage in Luke chapter 1. He's all over Luke, this passage. Um, when Mary arrived, the Spirit showed up with power. And I would say the obvious application is that when you move into any time of corporate worship, whether that is a small group or your family or Grace Community Church or wherever you go into corporate worship, go filled with the Spirit. And I think you pray a prayer like that goes like this, Spirit, I welcome your ministry into my life. I welcome your teaching ministry. I welcome your prophetic ministry. I welcome your gifting ministry. Spirit, will you please fill me now so that I can be an instrument of your presence in this place? And then you pray that prayer and you do the next thing in the power of the Spirit. And there will be a spirituality that will show up in the culture when you do that. Let me introduce a concept to you. It's a concept that's called hosting the presence of God. Not original with me. I know a number of authors that talk about this, and I'll talk a lot more about this on January the 14th. But it's hosting the presence of God. Mary, as she was pregnant, hosted the presence of God literally in her womb. You now host the presence of God because you are indwelt by the Spirit the moment you come to Christ. And you have a choice about what you do with the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. That means we have a choice about whether we will quench the Spirit, about whether we will grieve the Spirit, or about whether we will walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. You have a choice. Will you host the presence of the Spirit in your life, or will you be neglectful of that presence? We had um, my youngest son, uh, and his family with us uh, in October. My parents were also there. So we hosted the presence of two young children, still in diapers. And everything that we did revolved around, what do those kids need? You know? We're hosting the presence of two young kids. We realized we had some places in our house that were not baby-proof. I'm thinking, oops. <laughs> Uh, I lost my fatherhood wisdom, you know, of young, because I didn't, I didn't, you know, take that cabinet drawer, you know, and make sure that was locked. You know, everything we did, we had to think about the presence of these two young kids. When you're hosting the presence of the Spirit in your life, everything you do revolves around the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing, the nudgings, the promptings, the leadings of the Spirit. In, in your life. Um, honestly, it's possible to be neglectful of the Spirit. That's why Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's not a salvation verse. That's a verse that applies to believers, believers who have grown lukewarm. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You can be neglectful of the presence of the Spirit and the abiding presence of Jesus. So my challenge is, if you're going to worship well this Christmas and throughout your whole life, pay attention 
to your responsibility to host the presence of God in your life. And I would apply this to our church. I just urge us, when you come to the church on Sunday morning, come intentionally filled with the Spirit. Here's a second takeaway. Realize that worship involves risk. Worship involves risk. Look again at Luke 1.42. He says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She said that in a very loud voice. Now, you have to put yourself a little bit in the end of the culture. Because in the culture of Ein Karem in the hill country of Judea, where they lived, the houses were all clumped together. They didn't have fancy insulation between the sheetrock and the bricks. They didn't have, you know, windows that were double-paned, where no sound came out. You were highly respectful of the noise that you made in the home because your neighbors heard every word that you said. So if a woman says something very loud, like about eight different houses, and you go, what was that all about? What was that all about? Now, she's taking a risk. The Spirit has filled her, and she's now going to exalt the Lord in a loud way, taking the risks of doing something that would be very embarrassing. I will tell you that Spirit-filled authentic worship involves a level of risk. I'll give you the simple risks. Sometimes, you know, worship might feel risky to you to raise your hands because you think, that might, that might be weird if somebody saw me raising my hand and I'll see them on Monday morning at the office. And I, may, I might be embarrassed if they saw me doing, doing that. Worship involves risk. Uh, it might be risky to sing loud because you don't have a great voice. So if I sing loud, it's going to be risky because they might think I'm, I'm kind of weird. Or maybe you do have a great voice, and if you sing loud, people will go, who's that? Who's got the great voice? Where, where are they? Um, it, it might seem risky to tell somebody else about a prophetic word that God gave to you. It might feel risky. I have learned more um, about prayer through by, by being on our healing prayer team than I, I've learned in my probably my previous years of being a believer. Because five of us, and it's always a different five, will pray over someone. And I have had many, many times where the Lord will specifically impress upon me a, a picture or a scripture or a word that I should share. And, you know, I was pretty new to this about five, seven years ago. And I, I would be, I'd be a little, little nervous about sharing this. I was in a prayer session one time, and I got a very vivid picture. I took a big breath. I said, all right, all right, Lord, here I go. I'm going to share this. And the person just said, I can't believe you're saying this. Because this morning as I was praying, I had the exact same impression. And the fact that you are saying this to me now makes me realize God loves me, and he's involved in my really difficult situation. And I said, thank you, Lord, that I took the risk. Because I wouldn't have known that he was working supernaturally in both our lives had I not done that. Authentic worship 
involves risk. And here's the third takeaway. Don't let messiness <coughs> dissuade you from worship. Mary is in a mess. Elizabeth and Zechariah are in a mess. You and I live in a fallen world. We often encounter messes. Messes happen in this fallen world. And there are two bad options in dealing with a mess. One bad option is saying, I'm in a mess. God must hate me. I must be bad. I must be a bad Christian. I must be an awful believer in Christ because I'm in this mess. And you begin to beat yourself up, you know, because you're in a bad situation. Nobody worships when they're beating themselves up. Or, you know, you want to deny the mess. I'm okay. I'm not in a mess. Fine. I'm fine. No, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm doing really, really well. And you're, deny, you're denying the mess. Well, you can't worship there either. I mean, part of the reason why God allows the mess is because He wants us to make choices to trust Him in the midst of the chaos. Jesus said, in this world you will have, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Are you of good cheer when you're in the mess? When you're in the mess? I'm not. Last night, three o'clock in the morning, my dog jumps up in my bed and he wants to go outside. I said, Oh, Sadie, like this. And as I walked down the stairs, I reminded myself, Thank you, Jesus that I have legs that work, that I have a house that's warm, that I have a dog that I like. <laughs> thank you, God, that I got a wife that I love. And thank you that I'm going to go right back to sleep. When you're in the midst of the mess, no matter if it's, if it's a little small mess or a really big mess, you have a choice about what you're going to do. Here's my final takeaway. Make the choice. Make the choice. And making the choice means that you get into the discipline of turning toward the Spirit daily, moment by moment. All of us are going to worship something. We're human. We cannot not worship. Worship's hardwired into our humanity. And when we come to Christ, what the Spirit does is he, he, he makes us shift from the worship of people and things to the worship of the source of those people and things so that we worship God and we serve people in the power that the Spirit provides. We're going to take communion in just a moment. I'm going to ask Andy and Sherilyn Dossa to come forward. They're going to read our scripture reading. Let me pray as we begin to transition back into worship and into communion. Father in heaven, um, we, we confess that all of us are idolaters at some level. We love to worship things that aren't you. We thank you that the Spirit heals us from our idolatry because he shifts our mind and our heart to the source of the things that we love so that we worship and serve God and God only. And that way we can enjoy things 
created things the way you've intended them to be enjoyed, as good things from your good hand. Lord, as we take communion, I just pray that we might be able to adore you in the midst of our mess. In Jesus' name.